You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Here's some things we're not going to talk about at the top of today's show. Here's some words you're not going to hear come out of my mouth except this once. Baskets, deplorables, Pam Bondi, the Trump Foundation, pneumonia, or the numbers 9 and 11. What I want to talk about is cocksuckers on television. If you will indulge me, Finding Prince Charming premiered last Thursday on Logo. Finding Prince Charming is the gay bachelor slash bachelorette. It is the gay dating show or the gay find me my one true love find me marriage white picket fence monogamy show for gay men hosted by lance bass on logo and it premiered last week and there was a lot of controversy in the run-up that i really don't want to go into because i really don't think it should matter turns out the guy who was cast as the, the lead the star the bachelor the guy whose hand and everything else all the other contestants are competing for had done some sex work earlier in his life and had made a couple of dirty videos which I don't think, A, should matter, and B, I don't think it should really surprise anyone because going on a dating show on television is a form of sex work itself. To have done sex work professionally is a qualification, I think, to be on a show like The Bachelor, Bachelorette, or now Finding Prince Charming. What I found interesting about watching this show, and I don't, let me just say up front, I don't think it was a terrible or tragic or incompetent iteration of the form. It was pretty good. It was pretty entertaining. But what I found problematic, if I may steal that term and cheapen it and degrade it by having it come out of my mouth. What I found problematic about the show was that the producers didn't pay attention to what the dynamic really is on a show like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And the dynamic is engineered scarcity. There is one bachelorette and there are 13 suitors competing for her pussy. Excuse me, pussy. There's one pussy, there's 13 dicks, and there's only one pussy for those dicks. Only one sheath for those swords. And so there's scarcity and there's a competition there. Who will get the girl and everything that comes with her? The bachelor. Who will get the dick? And everything comes with it. There's 13 pussies, one dick, and there's a competition. There is scarcity. And the problem on a gay dating show is that there are 13 dicks and one other dick. And the contestants, the suitors, the people who are competing for the lead's hand are as likely or as able to turn to each other for the dick that they want as they are to pine for the star dick, the lead dick. It just kind of doesn't work because there's no scarcity. This is a problem I've identified in the past. MTV had a dating show many years ago called Next where four people would sit on a bus and there'd be somebody off the bus that they were all going to go and have a date with. And if that person didn't want to keep seeing them after a few minutes, they would say Next and someone else would get off the bus. And to be fair and to be progressive and to be pro-gay mtv a couple of times cast gay dudes used gay dudes but the problem was the four dudes on the bus ended up in a pile on the floor on the bus and didn't give a shit about the guy outside the bus because they had plenty of dick inside the bus because there was no scarcity and so it seems to me that if you're going to do a gay dating show you need to engineer that scarcity and it seems Obvious to me that that would be easy and doable and interesting because there are aspects to gay male subcultures, sexual subcultures that gay men talk about all the time and are all hyper aware of and that straight people find kind of fascinating. 
And so putting this on TV, my God, straight people would be interested and fascinated. Gay people would be like, yep, there it is. That's what gay dating can be like. And how do you do that? How do you create that scarcity? 13 bottoms, one top. Or 13 tops, one bottom that they're all competing for. Or 13 bears, one skinny twink only into bears. And 13 bears only into skinny twinks. Or one BDSM bondage toppy guy and 13 subs. So that there are 13 pots and only one lid. And then there is scarcity. Then there is a competition. Now, here's hoping Finding Prince Charming does well enough that there is a season two. And that in season two, the producers get it right. Not 13 interchangeable, semi-diverse candidates, mostly mask for mask type, seeking the picket fence and the ring and commitment and whatever else. But 13 pots and one lid that they are competing for. Then we won't have to worry about all the contestants ending up in a heap on the lawn which is the likeliest possible outcome for Finding Prince Charming, which is why I will be watching. And speaking of the gays on the television sets, a big congratulations to RuPaul, who won an Emmy Award this weekend for Outstanding Host of a Variety, Nonfiction, or Reality Program. Ru was up against Dancing with the Stars, Tom Bergeron, Heidi Klum, and Tim Gunn from Project Runway, Jane Lynch from Hollywood Games Night, and American Idol's Ryan Seacrest and others. And she beat out that field. And congratulations, Ru. Rue won that Emmy for hosting Drag Race. I really think that Drag Race deserves an award and deserves more credit from Queerland than it gets for something else Drag Race does each and every season, which is show us a much more diverse range of gay men than any other program on television or any other network on television has ever bothered to show us. You talk to people, some you know, queer, radical, progressive types like me. You talk to a lot of queer people and they will complain about the way gay people are represented on television. It's always could pass for straight, semi-masculine, hot, ripped, tall, middle class, almost always white guys that you see on television. You know where you can see gay men of all races, gay non-native English speakers, gay immigrants, Gay people who are heavy, gay people who are poor, gay people who've been to prison. You know where you see this range of gay male types? RuPaul's Drag Race every season. And you, if you care about the diversity of representation of gay men on television, you should be watching and supporting RuPaul's Drag Race. It's good reality television. It's also, ironically, the most diverse representation, the most diverse core sample of gay men that you will see on television all through the prism of drag and a reality show competition, which is telling, interesting. And RuPaul's Drag Race, in addition to being fun, and RuPaul's Drag Race, in addition to having an Emmy award-winning host, is also good politics and good for gay men. All right, coming up today on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, your questions plus my brother here to talk about racism, bigotry, prohibition, and Donald Trump and how we've heard this song before. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, we've got Bailey J here to talk about dating, about trans women, and how to date trans women without objectifying trans women. All coming up. Dan, I really like your show. Now I need some advice. I'm living on Canada's East Coast. My son is 16 and about to start grade 11, along with his best friend, Chris. The problem is we, my son and I, think Chris is headed for disaster, and we don't know if we can do anything to stop the train wreck we see coming. Chris and his girlfriend have been together since grade 9, and they are sexually active. My son has been recently told by his friend's girlfriend that she wants to have a baby with Chris. 
Chris, according to my son, is on board with this idea and thinks he can manage a baby, school, and work. Chris's girlfriend has dropped out of school partway through grade 10 last school year. Her plan is to continue to work at the laundromat she currently holds a job at and live with Chris and the baby in a family-owned trailer. She has claimed that she is now off birth control. She was taking the pill no more. I don't know what to do. Chris lost his mom last winter to cancer, and his girlfriend, he and his girlfriend are each other's first loves, and I know how powerful that first relationship can be. Do I approach a family member of Chris's? I don't know his girlfriend's family at all, but I am acquaintances with Chris's aunt who is very close to his mom, her sister. Should I reach out to her? If I do this, it will impact Chris's trust and and his friendship with my son. What do you do? I feel like no matter who tries to reach out to these kids, it will drive them closer together and perhaps cause them to seclude themselves more than they already have, maybe even prompt them to go through with this crazy plan. I know this feeling of wanting to do something, wanting to intervene without there actually being anything you reasonably could do that would be effective. You can't break up this girl's vagina. You can't separate them. You can't call the authorities and have these two teenagers dragged away from each other. The age of consent for sexual activity in Canada is 16. It sounds like both of these kids are 16-ish and they can be sexual and they can slam their genitals down on the self-destruct button if that's what they want to do. And it's tempting to look at the situation and go, oh my God, they're going to destroy their lives. You're going to destroy your lives. And is that fair in all cases? Are there cases of people who got pregnant as teenagers in high school and lived a rougher life but didn't necessarily destroy their lives. Maybe what we should say instead of destroy, which sounds so catastrophizing and would cause these two kids, if you tried to talk to them, just to shut you down, derail, divert, distract their lives, complicate their lives needlessly at this stage when they are both still children. Their frontal lobes aren't fully developed yet. They aren't able to make rational adult decisions about the next, really, 30, 40 years of their lives, the rest of their lives. And you can impress that upon them, but then at a certain point, you have to let them do what they're going to do anyway. Because what other choice do you have? You can't put him in a chastity cage, and you can't, again, brick up her vagina. You can, however, and I think you should, speak to the aunt about what you know to be going on, even if it risks your son's relationship with this friend. There are times, we've covered this a lot on the podcast, there are times when you have to risk a friendship to intervene. Somebody's going to marry someone who's terrible. You might have to speak up before the wedding, even if it pisses that person off who's your friend, even if it puts the friendship at risk. There are times when you risk those friendships. You would, of course, be risking your son's friendship in this. And so I think you need to involve your son in this conversation about what you should do or what can be done. At a certain point, you have to step back. You can stage an intervention. You can all gather around this boy and attempt to talk sense to him. But you're right. The harder you go, the the harder you drive this, the harder you push this, the likely you are to push them together. They will Romeo and Juliet this. The whole world is against us. That means our love is so powerful and real and transcendent. And there's only one way to prove all of these olds wrong, that they're wrong about our love and its permanence, that they're wrong about our plan and its advisability, and that's to go through with it. 
So I think you go in there saying, you need to really think about this. And then that kind of empowers them to make their own choices and their own decision rather than saying, do not do this, which is, of course, as a parent, what I would be tempted to say. If I knew this kid or these kids or was the father of one of these kids, I would go in with do not do this. But it might be better, and I think I can see this because I'm at a remove from this situation, and these aren't kids I know or my kid, for you to go in saying, think about it. Think about it, think about it, think about it. And if you know anyone who did this very thing, who had kids at 15, 16, 17 years old, you might want to involve them in the conversation, even if their example isn't catastrophic, even if they managed, as most people who have children young do they manage? Maybe a good idea to involve someone in the conversation who walked the path that these two are contemplating walking, who made the choices these two are thinking about making in that convo. But at a certain point, if someone's going to douse themselves with gasoline and light matches, there's only so much that you can do. There's only so many matchbooks you can slap out of their hands before they do it and go through with it. Makes you feel helpless. But sometimes you can't stop people from slamming their genitals down on those self-destruct buttons. Hey, Dan. I'm a 44-year-old white boy that prefers women in, living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I've got a midlife relationship question for you. My wife died last July. In January, I met this girl on Tinder. We went out probably more than I've been out with any other girl since. Uh, we took an overnight trip to Fall Creek Falls to go hiking. She flew down to Florida for the weekend when I was there for training for the business that I bought. I think she's a really awesome person. The problem is that I don't really enjoy kissing her or having sex with her. We live an hour apart. We both have children at home, so we don't. We didn't get to see each other a lot. She went on vacation right after the last time we saw each other, and. I kind of ignored her a little bit. I finally did text her back and let her know that I was having a really hard time because it was the, my wife's birthday had just passed and the anniversary of her death was coming up. My question is, should I explain things further to her? We're friends on Facebook. I see her posts all the time. She doesn't seem like she's too devastated about losing me. I, I just don't want to be a dickhead. There is something you need to explain to her, but it's not, I don't enjoy kissing you. I'm not actually attracted to you physically. And I didn't enjoy the sex. You don't have to say that what you do have to tell her. And the reason you don't want to say that is you don't want to leave her in worse shape than you found her. You don't want to say something devastating. And that's really subjective. The kind of subjective personal experience shit that when someone hears from someone who's on their the way out, someone who's ending the relationship, they blow that up to nobody ever is going to want to kiss me. I am a lousy kisser. I am bad sex. Instead of we didn't click these two, me and this person, we didn't click. So you don't want to give her those reasons. You don't want to lay out that particular critique that you cite. And that is a legitimate thing to take into account when you're thinking of making some sort of long-term commitment or becoming involved with somebody over the long term. You guys clicked emotionally. You got along well. You had a good time hanging out. But the sex didn't really work for you and you're done. You're, you're out. But there is something that you do owe her, which is closure for lack of a better word. I actually hate that word. People often demand closure and what they're 
asking for is for the person that they're demanding that closure from to stay involved with them because I get to decide when you've given me the closure that I want and so you can never get away from me. But in this case, you do need to close this. You need to put a lid on it because what you said to her was, I'm having a hard time with the anniversary of my wife's death and my wife's birthday. And so she may think we're on hold. He just needs some time and space. And she's going on with her life. And as you can see on Facebook and whatever other social media you're following on, she's not at home weeping, but she's probably at home expecting a call from you. She's probably at home reasonably expecting to pick things up where you two left off once you come through these weeks of depression, uh, these weeks of sitting with your feelings about your wife, your your late wife. That's not the case. You're not going to pick things up where you left off. You owe her that. And so you write her a note saying, I like you. You're a wonderful person. The times that we shared were really good for me and really healing, but I don't think that we're right for each other. I don't think that I want to remain romantically involved with you going forward. You're a wonderful person. Let's be friends and let's remain friendly. You have to stick the dismount in every sense of the term. You have to stick the dismount and you owe her that, at least that. And I'm very sorry about the loss of your wife and I'm sorry for your kids and uh, I hope you are feeling better. And I think you'll feel better about the end of this relationship if you make it clear to her that it is indeed over. Hi, Dan. I am a straight 27-year-old male and I've been in a wonderful 10-month relationship. Um, Everything is going great. No complaints. The only thing is she's actually 12 years older than me. She did tell me her age pretty early on when we met and neither of us thought that that was going to be a big deal because we just assumed that it was going to be a fling. Cut to 10 months later and it's not. I guess my question is how common is this? Whenever I bring this up to friends or family, everybody's feels the need to tell me that I'm either being shorted or that this is not the right thing for me, but I don't feel like that. Yeah, I just was wondering, am I a super minority here, or do you just not hear younger men dating older women? Is this just kind of a double standard? According to the National Center for Family and Marriage Research at Bowling Green State University, the number of Older women who've married younger men has jumped 67% in the last 50 years. So you are not alone digging around. I also found a page on biblical support for older women marrying younger men. So the Bible might be on your side too. You might want to do a little Googling about this. And you might want to do a lot less listening to your friends, judging your relationship. If you're happy in this relationship – That's really all that matters. And you can say age is an arbitrary number. You can use whatever cliche you want and pushing back against your friends who think you are somehow doing yourself harm or wrong by being with this person. And you've only been with this person for 10 months. You don't know how long this relationship is going to last. What your friends are doing and your family may be doing is gaming out in their heads the prospect of the next five or six decades and whether that will work out when there's this kind of significant age difference. And that's really irrelevant. Most relationships don't last five or six decades. And you can have a good and loving relationship that lasts 10 months, 12 months, a couple of years, five years, and it have been a success. Maybe you'll only be with this woman for 
another 10 months. Maybe you'll be with this woman for a decade and then you will part as friends, both of you older and wiser, and move on to new partners. And the time will not have been wasted just because you weren't together forever. And even if the age difference was a contributing factor to the demise of the relationship or your breakup, that still doesn't mean that you wasted the time that you spent together if that time was loving, if you both grew as people, if you were kind to each other, not just while you were together, but also in the parting, you were kind to each other. Like people have this in their heads that if something ends, it was worthless and should never have begun. A standard we don't apply to anything really but relationships. We don't apply that standard to jobs, careers, vacations, houses we purchase, anything else. Really, we don't ascribe that criteria to. But relationships, we look at and say, well, if there's anything about this relationship that points to possibly it ending at some point before one or the other or both of these people die in a fire, then it should never have started. This was a waste of time. And that's just not fucking true. Even if you guys break up tomorrow, if those 10 months were a great 10 months for her and a great 10 months for you, they were 10 months well spent. You can say the same thing about 10 years or 20 years. So stop listening to your friend and enjoy this relationship for however long it lasts. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because I want to talk about for a minute this thing that everybody else was talking about last week. Here it is. My culture is a very dominant culture. And it's imposing and it's causing problems. If you don't do something about it, you're going to have taco trucks every corner. Joining me by phone to unpack the idiocy in those comments, Bill Savage, who teaches American literature at Northwestern University and writes about urban life for the Chicago Tribune and other publications, also writes about sports for ESPN.com and has written extensively about saloon culture and happens to uh, be my older brother. Hey, Billy. (laughs) Hello, Danny. How are you? <laughs> it's good. Thank you for uh, jumping on the phone. I really appreciate it. Always glad to talk on the phone. Mom so, would be proud. So last week at the top of the show, I played one of my favorite songs. Seems to me we've heard that song before about Donald Trump's whole immigration bashing, immigrant bashing shtick right. about the, the, the racism and the uh, the othering and, and, and the demagoguery that, that Trump and his campaign and, and Coulter and all the rest of these alt-right shitheads have unleashed. And I made the point that this is not new. And listening to that guy talk about taco trucks, it occurred to me that even that kind of demagoguery is not new. And you are the person that I thought to call to ask about it because you've written about ex- exactly that kind of look at those taco trucks on every corner. But in the past, it wasn't taco trucks. What was it? It was saloons. It was German beer gardens and Irish whiskey taverns. Before that, even, it might have been Chinese opium dens. The Americans who are afraid of the other and afraid of immigration always seem to focus on sort of public or semi-public displays of identity. So um, in the 19th century, the Germans were, uh, German lager was held up as a horrible invasive species, along with Irish whiskey that were going to somehow destroy American culture in this, uh, the Prohibition came about largely because not of, it's always thought to be the Women's Christian Temperance Union and kind of just a, uh, a religious movement, mm-hmm. but it's actually about American identity and public displays of what some people considered un-American identity. And people at that time considered Irish saloons and German beer halls as un-American manifestations of this foreign culture, these people who could never be assimilated because look at how different they are. And it really was the equivalent right. of demagoguing about taco trucks. Look at those saloons. Exactly. Look at all those Germans in their beer garden acting like we don't act. 
And the Germans in their beer garden, their women and children are there <gasps> eating food and playing oompa music. I mean, it's, it's terrible. At least the Irish kept all the women out mm-hmm. um, of their saloons for the most part. So this, this is absolutely part of American culture. The nativist, reactionary, anti-immigrant crowd always focuses on public displays of identity, like the nitwits at Fox who freak out over Cinco de Mayo and Mexican Independent Day parades where people are driving around in the street with Mexican flags. They don't worry so much about St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, or Oktoberfest celebrations, because the Germans and the Irish have been thoroughly assimilated, but the Mexicans are still the other. American culture just plays the same song over and over again with different people in the enemy position. So how is it that we have forgotten this? Everybody knows, or most educated people know, or even most people who are mildly conversant with American history, know about prohibition, but don't know that it was an anti-immigration movement targeting Germans and Irish that led to prohibition. Maybe if more Americans knew that, more Americans would be immune to the poison that Donald Trump is out there trying to sell right now. How do we keep forgetting? We keep forgetting because uh, as soon as repeal happened, uh, we were busy with the Great Depression and then World War II, and prohibition was seen as sort of a, um, by most historians, kind of a hiccup, like an, an aberration in American culture. But it fundamentally changed the role of federal government in American mm-hmm. culture, and how conservatives who hate the government can don't know this is just maddening. Uh, before prohibition, federal law enforcement was the Secret Service who protected the president and fought counterfeiters, and the customs agents who uh, you know took care of tariffs in the ports. Um, there was no the Federal Bureau of Investigation was a bunch of accountants. Um, there was no DEA. There was no massive carceral state of prisons on the federal and state and local level, putting people away for consuming products for their own pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole giant apparatus of federal law enforcement that we now spend billions of dollars a year on grows out of prohibition. And so people want to forget it, and there's powerful interests that want to maintain that. Um, and we're still living in prohibition now. It's just different substances uh, with the same kind of hate rhetoric attached. I mean, why, is, why do we call cannabis marijuana? Because uh, the DEA types who got marijuana made or cannabis made illegal in the early 30s held up the image of crazy Mexicans raping white women because they were uh, gone nuts on loco weed. Mm-hmm. Uh, marijuana wasn't illegal till near the end of alcohol prohibition. Um, opium and uh, heroin and cocaine weren't illegal till the first dec- second decade of the 20th century, and there was an anti-Chinese thing was used. Right, the opium dens of Chinatown. Uh, the threat to American identity. How do we keep falling for it over and over? How do we? How do? We, how does the American, you know, populace keep stepping on the same fucking rake and getting hit in the fucking face again and again and again <laughs> without going? You know what? Maybe we're gonna look down this time before we step on the rake that is Donald Trump and his Mexican bashing and Muslim bashing because every time we've reshaped law and punishment because of the scary other and their opium dens or their beer gardens or their saloons or their taco trucks. In the end, we regret it. In the end, then we have to, you know, spend a lot of time and money undoing the damage done. Well, first of all, I have to object to your metaphor because I think that Sideshow Bob is way smarter than the American people. (laughs) (laughs) So every every time Sideshow Bob gets that rake and goes, (laughs) um, the reason is that as different groups of people move from outsider to insider status, they repeat the same pattern of wanting to make someone else the outsider. So the Irish and the Germans no longer have to fight back against their saloons and their beer gardens being closed, but they don't want a taco truck on every corner because that threatens them. And it shows how inside they are now if they can be the ones policing the borders of who exactly. is in America. Exactly. And even the religious parallels. I mean, the only thing keeping the, the Roman Catholic Church alive in America is Latino immigrants. 
so how can any how can a a, a media person named O'Reilly or Hannity or a politician named Ryan be against Catholicism? Well, if they're Mexican first and Catholic second, then you can do that, I guess. Give us some um, recommended reading, Professor Savage, before we go. Um, you should read Daniel Ockren's book, Last Call, uh, which is the most comprehensive history of prohibition, and originally was entitled, How the Hell Did That Happen? <laughs> uh, and very quickly, anti-German sentiment was a huge part of it. Also, the uh, Internal Revenue Service, the income tax. Think about that word. Why is it the Internal Revenue Service? Because the customs were the external revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lisa McGurr's book, The War on Alcohol, which delves deeply into uh, repeal. And you have a book coming up. You have I a book do. called The Old Time Saloon. It's a book from the 1930s by somebody named George Aid, but you have created an annotated edition. Tell us quickly about your book, Billy, before we let you go. Um, George Aid was one of the most famous writers in America in the first decades of the 20th century. First guy to have three plays on Broadway at once. One of America's first screenwriters and filmmakers. And he was a real conundrum. He was probably gay. He was an ardent Republican, an ardent college football fan. Uh, Purdue University's stadium is named in part for him because he raised the money to build it. Hmm. Um, and a wet. He believed that government had better things to do when the wolf was at the door than policing what people drank. And the Old Time Saloon is a great look at the politics of prohibition, the saloon culture in America from 1870 to 1920. Um, and I hope my notes make it more interesting and connected to contemporary issues as well. So the book is The Old Time Saloon by George Aid, annotated by Bill Savage, coming out from University of Chicago Press next month. You can pre-order it at press.uchicago.edu. Thank you, Billy. Thanks very much, Daniel. Talk to you later. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old woman, and I just started dating uh, this man who, for the past, I would say, four months or so, and everything was great, um, but now we seem to not really be having sex. He's told me he's, he has a low sex drive, and it's part of how he was raised, it's kind of taboo to have sex and to masturbate, whereas I'm the complete opposite. I could masturbate all day, every day, and have sex every single day. So this has been an issue, but I've been really vocal about, you know, we need to have sex more, we need to initiate more, like this is something that I need. Um, I haven't really seen any results as of yet, so I just wanted to know your opinion on should I move forward, should we break up? Um, I do really like him, so I don't know. Please run screaming from this man. This is Dan from the future who's just received your phone call or letter about your miserable sexless marriage now that you're trapped with this person because you stayed with them because you liked them and now that you've had a couple of kids there's no way out and you have incompatible libidos and he has no or low libido and you have a high libido and you guys are constantly at each other's throats about this and you are fucking miserable and thinking about cheating on him or maybe you've already cheated on him and he doesn't want to agree to an open relationship so it's a betrayal and you're going to be the bad guy if you get don't stay in this relationship half the mail and half the calls some weeks are from people in this relationship who didn't bail at the stage you're at now, who didn't bail early and often. You're not sexually compatible. You aren't having sex now at the start. That is not something, that is not a problem that over time seems to, if ever, right itself. It's a problem that only gets worse. And something that you can sort of live with or endure now because you really like him and whatever first flush of relationship, oxytocins are flying around, you won't be able to endure that over the long term. Over the long term, the feelings of anger, frustration, resentment, rejection will grow to a point where you will be poisoned by them. You will be made miserable by them. Look at this person. 
Tell him you like him. He's a nice guy, but the sex ain't working. And you are looking for not just a romantic partner, but a sexual partner. And you have a right to prioritize sexual compatibility, basic fundamental sexual compatibility, not perfect match sexual compatibility because there are no perfect matches. But no libido and a libido, that is never a match or never a match that leads to any sort of long-term happiness and contentment. So run and you're welcome. Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Straight, uh, cis, et cetera, male from the West Coast. Bit of a relationship quandary. Um, so I've been with uh, my girlfriend for almost a year now. Yeah, things have been good. You know, we used to have a lot of sex. And it sort of dwindled, and now it's gone. And the reason that she was in a... We talked about it a lot. We're both very open and communicative about our feelings, stuff like that. So um, basically what she says, you know, she's she was in a very physically and like sexually abusive relationship for a couple of years before we met. And that was like her first big relationship. So it took a really big toll on her, I think. I've been with her throughout that sort of process afterwards. And it's been really traumatizing for her. And I've been supportive. And I guess, you know, for a while, like... She's just been like she's had struggles with depression and stuff like that, anxiety and panic disorder. And, uh, you know, we talked about it a little while ago. Um, like last time we had sex twice. So we haven't had sex much lately, but we had sex about a month ago now. And, um, you know, she said she got triggered in a moment or something. And, and I, I guess it, she didn't feel good about sex that time. And then we waited a little bit and then we had sex again and it was great. You know, I'm a very, GGG partner, you know, like I'm very interested in meeting her needs sexually and making her feel good. So it's not like uh, it's like a one way street. And so even even so, after our last time, you know, she said she just doesn't like feel like having sex and she doesn't feel good and she feels depressed and she feels pressured to have sex and she doesn't like it and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, okay, um, you know, uh, let's just take a break and you know stop having sex for a bit if that's what you want and we haven't had sex in like I guess two or three weeks or something and honestly I'm starting to feel really resentful so I really love her and I don't want to end the relationship necessarily but it's just like I'm starting to feel really angry and frustrated that she's not dealing with her issues she takes medication but she like keeps saying she's going to seek therapy and she never does and it's like I don't want to be in a sexless relationship I feel like I'm in my sexual prime, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm good in bed, and I want to have you know, sexual experiences, I want to be fulfilled, and I'm not. And I'm worried that it's going to blow up or something, I'm just not going to be able to deal with it. You care about this woman. You want to be supportive, you want to be kind, you want to be compassionate. You also have needs and wants of your own, and I don't see how you win when it's not a contest there are no winners and no losers necessarily. I don't see a, a route here where you don't get tagged as the monster because staying and being with her and having reasonable needs and expectations around a desire for intimacy with your girlfriend makes you this monster who's making her feel pressured to have sex. But if you dump her because she is still reeling from her abusive former relationship because she's depressed, because she's she has anxiety, because certain things triggered her. If you leave her, then you're a monster who dumped her when she was in need of help and love and support. And so 
what do you do in a case like that? And what do I do? What do I tell you to do in a case like that without thereby being labeled monster myself? She has needs and she has limitations right now. And she's kind of sounds like she's stuck in a, a certain place and isn't showing a lot of forward momentum. If she's taking her meds, but she's not seeking therapy or counseling that can help her move through and move past this and get to a healthier place for herself and for you, I don't think you're required to stay in that stuck place with her forever lest you be labeled unsupportive for bailing. I think you can bail and you can bail in a loving and kind and concerned and compassionate way. You can say to her using your words, my existing in your life right now as a boyfriend, you're having a boyfriend right now makes you feel pressured in a way that I'm not comfortable with and that you're not comfortable with. So we should probably take that label off our relationship and take those expectations out of the equation and stop seeing each other in that way. Stop being romantically involved with each other right now. Let's stay friendly. Let's stay in touch. I want to be there for you in ways that make you feel loved and supported, but not pressured. So we are no longer boyfriend and girlfriend. We are friends. And I want you to get the help that you need to move past this abusive ex relationship. And I want you to get the help that you need because clearly meds alone isn't enough to move through this. And then maybe down the road, because we're going to stay in touch and we're still going to be there for each other. Maybe down the road, we can resume a romantic relationship. Once again, be boyfriend and girlfriend without those expectations that come bundled in that relationship, making you feel sad or depressed or crushed by expectations. But right now, this is not good for you. Being in this relationship with me does not make you feel good. It makes you feel pressured. And being in this relationship with you for me doesn't make me feel good either because I feel however I move, whichever way I go, that I'm kind of the villain in the piece. I'm the guy who hangs out wishing he would have sex with him and making you feel pressured. Or I'm the guy who bailed because you wouldn't have sex with him or couldn't right now because of where you're at. So let's just pull the label off. Okay, so role play, Don, no longer speaking in your voice. You have the right to go. You don't have to stay in this relationship forever if she's not in a place right now where she can have a romantic relationship with you that is also sexual, that doesn't leave both of you feeling terrible about what you're doing or what you are forcing yourself to do. Hey, Dan, this is Jason from Minnesota. I have a, a question for you about uh, poly relationships. Um, I have been uh, with my wife now for about 11 years and uh, unfortunately didn't uh, realize much less come out to uh, myself or, or anyone else for that matter that I am poly until uh, actually about two or three years ago. She's amazing. Um, we've had a, a really solid, uh, lots of very good conversations about it. Um, she's one of, unfortunately, one of those rare people who is completely monogamous and really has uh, has no interest in um, being with other people. And she can be nobody but who she is, and I can be nobody but who I am. We've just talked about it. She's okay with me being poly and having these other relationships, but uh, fairly frequently, especially around uh, you know times of dates and stuff like that, jealousy rears its ugly head, and it's uh, it's really hard on her. Um, so my question for you, uh, what advice would you have to... Uh, help me help her and help 
her helper to help uh, help smooth these out. She can be nobody but who she is, which is someone who's strictly monogamous. One of those rare people you're making the monogamous sound like the freaks here, which is, I think, not fair because for years, people who were poly or in open relationships resented very much being made to sound like freaks by the monogamists or the monogamusts, as I sometimes like to call them. So let's not flip that back on them. Not one of those rare people, one of those many, many, many people who are either effortlessly monogamous or would prefer a monogamous relationship even if they realize they sometimes might want to sleep with other people. They're going to refrain from it, and that's the kind of relationship that they want. Monogamists aren't freaks. Poly people aren't freaks. Nobody's a freak. But she can be nobody but who she is, which is monogamous, and you can be nobody but who you are, which is not just poly, but kind of sounds selfish and a little bit of an asshole, frankly, right now. Just just saying, like, now I'm going to unpack that and walk that back. I don't want to call you a freak, but because you're not, but it seems like you're being kind of a selfish jerk, perhaps, in this circumstance. With the limited information that I have, maybe you're engaged in much more sort of detailed and compassionate convo with the wife than seems to come across in the question, the way you laid it out. But the person that you are, who you are, is a person who made a monogamous commitment to this woman 11 years ago. That... Now you would like a pass. You would like a get out of this shit monogamous commitment free card that you may or may not be entitled to just because you realized eight years into this marriage that you were poly. That doesn't mean you get to unilaterally impose upon your wife a non-monogamous relationship or an open marriage that she didn't sign up for. This is something – if you're going to renegotiate the terms of your marriage contract, this is something that you have to do together and she has to buy into. She can either accept she's going to have an open relationship imposed on her or get used to it, which it seems to be what she's struggling to do, or she can go. And she has a right to say to you, if you want to be with me, you can't have sex with other people. That's the commitment that you made to me. And then you get to decide whether you're going to go or not. Now, I want to exonerate you to some extent after beating the shit out of you for a minute. 11 years ago when you made this monogamous commitment, perhaps you were one of those many people out there who thought there was no other kind of commitment a person could make. And in the last decade, as we've heard a lot more about open relationships and poly relationships, you realize that that's the relationship model that you're best suited for. But, you know, 11 years ago, some straight guy in the Midwest, you didn't know about open relationships. You'd never actually met anybody in an open relationship, much less a polyamorous relationship. And it didn't even occur to you that that could be an option. But now that you know, you know that that's what you want. And that's what it sounds like you now have. You go off on dates, the wife gets jealous and unhappy. You go anyway, how can I help her? Well, you could not have sex with other people. That might help her. You could end your marriage if what she wants is monogamy. If monogamy, a monogamous commitment from someone who can do monogamy, even if they are still sometimes attracted to other people, would make her happier. Maybe that's the kind of relationship that she needs to be in now, now that she knows that you two are not on the same page about this very crucial aspect of a long-term committed relationship. Maybe she wants out. Maybe she needs out. Maybe she deserves out. Maybe getting out would be better for you too. All that said, you might want to do some reading. Opening Up by Tristan Taramino. Great place to start. There's a glossary at the back of that book with other book recommendations. Terrific book about opening. I sound like Donald fucking Trump. It's a really great book about 
opening up relationships. There are people out there. There are people out there that I know who kind of had openness imposed on them unilaterally, sort of the way you're imposing it on the wife right now unilaterally, who stayed, who worked through the jealousy, who are now content in those relationships. And in some cases, the relationships are now open mutually on both sides. So you can power through this. There have been times, I have to say, to give you your due, there have been times when someone has realized their poly unilaterally imposed new terms in their committed relationship to someone whom they made a monogamous commitment to in the past. And they've walked through the valley of the shadow of divorce and came out on the other side and are still together and now both open and poly and happy. So that can happen. I think it's likelier to happen in the case of your marriage. If you slow it the fuck down, maybe a few less dates, maybe you declare a moratorium on dates with other women while you and your wife get into counseling with a sex positive, poly positive counselor that you can find through ASECT, A-A-S-E-C-T dot org, the American Association of Sex Education Counselors and Therapists, and you don't fuck around for a year while you two talk about what this means, while you two renegotiate the terms of your commitment. And you demonstrate to your wife her importance to you and her primacy in this relationship by foregoing fucking around, by foregoing having sex with other people, not, not being poly, not, not being who you are, just putting this shit on hold until you guys have some time to really sort it out. Because I'm sure you realized this two, three years ago that you were poly. I bet you didn't start seeing other women the next day. And then at some point recently, last six months, 12 months, 18 months, you began to act upon it. And acting upon it is causing your wife a lot of pain. So stop acting upon it, not forever, because Polly's who you are, but for a while. To demonstrate to your wife, again, that she is your first priority. You are going to be who you are. But for now, you're going to put acting on that Polly stuff on hold for her while you guys continue to talk about it. And if at the end of that year... Or six months, you could put a six-month clock on it too. At the end of that time, you're no closer, you're not on the same page, there's no way for you to be who you are and for her to be who she is and you two to be happy together, then you move on from the polypositive relationship counselor to the divorce attorneys. Hey, Dan and the at-risk tech-savvy youth. So my boyfriend and I have an awesome relationship. We're wicked compatible on every level. We've discussed being monogamous since the start of our relationship about 10 months ago, but we're now feeling ready to take the plunge and find a third person to bring into our bedroom play. We're a super open-minded, totally GGG couple. I identify as queer and my boyfriend identifies as bi-curious. We're open to playing with pretty much anyone, but my boyfriend is super turned on um, by trans women, and we'd like to incorporate that into our first threesome together. So I just got on FetLife, and I started making a profile, and I realized I don't really know how to go about saying that we're both into the idea of hooking up with a trans woman without being super offensive or, you know, possibly making somebody feel objectified. Um, Neither my boyfriend or I are sure if there's an appropriate, acceptable term for us to use. Is there some sort of specific language we should be using or could be using? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Bailey J, transsexual porn star and occultist and the world's greatest Twitterer. 
If <laughs> I just I follow you on Twitter, uh, Bailey. Before we get to the question, and you're such a joy uh-huh. and such a pleasure and so hilarious on Twitter, and you you're everything that Twitter is supposed to be or should have been or could have been if it wasn't just overrun by right wing assholes and left wing weepy bags Asshole. of slop. Assholes, yeah, I guess <laughs> assholes is a is a but you know it's a bipartisan term of the opposite of endearment. But I really enjoy you on Twitter, and I just wanted to to encourage everyone out there who's listening before we even get to this question to follow Bailey J yeah. on Twitter at Bailey J tweets. Is that not right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's um, Twitter is a huge addiction of mine. So when people <laughs> like you encourage me to do it more, yeah. It's, yeah, when, it's cool. I, whenever I you don't it. tweet for a couple of days, I find my my Twitter satisfaction index declining. People tell me that, which is really nice. But what's funny is during that two days, I am way less neurotic. <laughs> Weird. So you make Twitter yeah. a better place for everybody else, but Twitter makes your day worse. That is kind Absolutely. of the magic of Twitter, isn't it? Horrible. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's, I tweet because I'm manic. Like I'm like, oh, this is a thought I'm having. So yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, being privy to your thoughts, and I think everybody should follow you on Thank Twitter. You. Now, to this question, this couple mm-hmm. open to or interested in, not just open to, actively kind of seeking, but inhibited about saying actively kind of seeking, uh, a trans woman mm-hmm. partner, someone to have three ways with, one officer, regulars. And how do you say that without making trans women who encounter your ad feel like they're being objectified? And is making people feel objectified always bad? Well, okay. So I personally, I'm always like, oh, fetishize me. Like, I love it. Like, I just, because I I have enough faith in my personality to know that someone couldn't help but humanize me because I'm just such a doll and I'll win them over, even if they are kind of only focusing on the fact that I'm trans or only focusing on the fact that they like my boobs. So I I kind of have confidence in that aspect of myself that I'm not worried about being uh, fetishized. But but this this is the shorthand of it. My opinion is that a lot of times it's people... They're not so much scared of being fetishized. A lot of trans women are scared of only being wanted as a trans woman. And that's mm-hmm. a huge generalization. It's different for everybody. But also, I'll, I'll talk from my personal experience. It's not like I'm like, you're not looking at me like a person. I think what's happening is I've been hurt because they're not looking at me like a, a woman. There's almost this other element to, you know, like like it somehow makes me other if they specifically want a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And we had a trans woman so, on the show uh, before who said that mm-hmm. you should never say seeking a trans woman because that's making some distinction between trans women and women. Just seek women and some trans women will maybe respond. But to me, that seems a little, you know, I, I you, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because I hear from, also hear from trans women that they feel like they can't respond to ads that don't specifically welcome them to respond to them. Well, a lot of us are scared to, yeah. I mean, there, there's no reason to assume when someone says woman that they're being inclusive because right. that's just not where the world is at But then yet. if you turn around and also say, but if you mention specifically that you're open to trans women, that's not okay either because you're objectifying me or fetishizing me. So, well, so it, how do you, it, how do you it win? It is a difficult – I feel like there's a nice way to do everything, which is funny coming from me because I'm kind of like all over the place with whether I'm nice or bitter. But, but there's <laughs> – there, there really is a nice way to do everything and, and, and maybe not even nice, maybe more so there's an affirming way to do everything. I'm mm-hmm. in therapy twice a week, so I'm really in a good affirming place. So like if I were to, let's say I would like to attract a trans woman um, to, to an ad, but then also I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in women in general, all, all types of women. 
I would just write an inclusive ad. I would make sure the tone is fun. I would make sure the tone is like, like people can read creep tone. So as long as it's not creepy, as long as you're not saying, I want all the trannies or I want all the transsexual, you're not trying to, there's this tone that can be like, we're looking for a third. We're looking for a woman. We're very inclusive. So that means all kinds of women, like Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, all sizes, maybe uh, all races, maybe, you know, and then kind of throw trans in there. And then you're including trans women in a broader spectrum of, of the different kinds of women as opposed to making them other, if that makes any sense. That makes total sense. So that is how you finesse this to include trans women as one of the many ways that women are women rather than saying into women, trans women specifically to say into women, this kind, that kind, trans women too. It's just another kind of womanhood that you're attracted to. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that would be, and I'm not really saying that like kind of sneak it in, like, I'm, but, but it is just more of a very inclusive and also you might attract a bunch of other kinds of fun, amazing women that maybe you, you didn't even know you wanted. So I, I would, but I, I would kind of just think about the kinds of women you like, think about what turns you on. And then, so then you could say like full figured women, women of color, trans women, just, you know, and be just, yeah, be very inclusive of what you're, you're looking for, but yeah, to say other to, to, to other a trans person, immediately it's going to be a turnoff because a lot of us want to be wanted as women and, and not just wanted as this, this other thing. It's, it's, it's insulting, but more to the point, it's a turnoff. Can we talk quickly about objectification? You're a porn star. Yeah. You are in the objectification business. Uh, you know, to be a yeah. porn star is to welcome a certain kind of objectification. And yeah. it always seems to me that when people throw out objectification as somehow in all cases dehumanizing, in all cases not okay, that they're not being very thoughtful about objectification. I think objectification is a problem if you stop at objectification, that if you only see someone as an object and stop and they're not human to you. But most people are attracted to other people, at least initially, as objects, and we don't clock it. We don't spot it or recognize it or talk about it as a problem if we're talking about conventionally attractive, able-bodied, cisgendered people. That's very true. That's only, if, if someone's like, if someone said they liked blondes and then they married a blonde, I wouldn't really think anything too horrific about them. Or if your first impulse to approach somebody in a bar is they are, you know, initially you clock them as an object. Like, look at that person. Look at that. You know, a human right. being is an object that exists in space and time and in the world. And so long as you're initially attracted to someone who is conventionally attractive in every sense – Somehow you get out of objectification free card in that interaction. But if you're initially attracted to someone because of something that sets them apart, something that's different about them, something that for some people is going to be a problem and removes them from the conventionally attractive pile, then you're a terrible person who's objectified that human being. And that to me seems a little self-defeating for people who are unconventionally attractive or who have differences to look at someone who's approaching you and think, "Uh uh-uh, motherfucker – you're objectifying me. But if that person approaches you initially as an object, just like somebody would approach someone conventionally attractive initially as an object, but then interacts with you also as a human being, is that not okay? Objectification is a slippery slope. As a trans woman, I see both sides of it because there is there is a type of guy out there you know, who's on Twitter just kind of collecting transsexuals. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like like it's just, just you know, and they, they lump us all together and there's no sort of, they don't give a shit about our politics or, or if we're ever going to be okay or, or letting other people know that they like trans people. Right. But then they, but you know, so, so then I do start to feel this element of being objectified where I'm like, I'm not a person to you because you don't care what happens to me when I walk home. You just, and so that there is that kind of element in there. But then again, 
I don't know that it's his responsibility to just because he's masturbating unless sex and masturbation is this horrific evil thing. So it's, it's, uh, you know, he didn't sign a contract that he has to care about me in order to masturbate to me. So there, there, so I, I do see the downsides and, and it does trigger some feelings in me to like, Oh, like, Oh, I feel objectified. Oh, I don't feel taken seriously. Or, Oh, I, I feel less than this is, this is, you know, making my tummy hurt kind of mm-hmm. response. But then also I objectify people. And I, I always <laughs> joke that I'm a trans girl, but I have a, I'm a, I'm a trans girl, but I have a male gaze. So that's, that's me personally. I catch myself just like staring at people I find very attractive and, and I get, you know, um, and I do objectify a, a little bit, you know, I, I, I talked to this really cute guy that was in a wheelchair and mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, your wheelchair is so hot. I was just so turned on because he was in a wheelchair and it was, I mean, we, we were very good friends in it. And I, I, you know, I know his backstory and, and we, but he's very turned on that I'm a girl with a penis. So you're both objectifying each other in some way, but you're not. But my point is, you don't end there. Maybe everybody who feels guilty yeah. about objectification, you should only feel guilty about objectification if that's where you stop. You see somebody, you're attracted to something that's subjective about them, you know, and you, you objectify them because of that thing. But And then if you stop, if you don't also then appreciate them as a human being, if you're incapable of then seeing them as a three-dimensional human being that isn't only mm-hmm. just that thing – or that object in front of you, then your objectification is a problem. But you know, that objectifying impulse that pulls people together isn't usually the end. There, we all objectify and are objectified. And I it's agree. only a problem if that's all we're doing to each other. And, and, I, and I, I think there's a huge confirmation bias with, with the way men are wired sexually. I think there's a huge confirmation bias where so much of the differences between male and female sexuality that are apparent, at least to me, from experiencing testosterone and estrogen and having sex with men and having sex with women, is that there is a major, you know, major difference in the in their sexuality, generally speaking. And so, a lot of what I would know as male sexuality gets clouded in or gets grouped into with, um, you know, kind of feeling like they're 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 owed it, or and there is an element of that in this culture. I'm not denouncing yeah, that at all. Yeah, male entitlement syndrome. But there, but there, but some some male sexuality gets kind of wrangled into it to some of that, and, and I think that is why there's this kind of you're objectifying me in this anger, and and uh, and sometimes we just generalize, you know, one one uh, guys do shitty stuff to girls, and then uh, down the road, then some other guys like, uh, you know, you know what I mean? I just feel like there's this kind of confirmation bias with right. with some of it, and a lot of trans men I know say, oh, when I started taking testosterone. I started kind of understanding dudes a little bit and was like, Oh God, this is like, you're just always horny and always staring. And this, this really sucks. So <laughs> always it's, um, it's just so, it's so weird. And I, when I don't block my testosterone, I'm just like, obje- you know, I stare and I, and I, but, but yeah, I obviously objectification's wrong if it ends there. I think that's kind of the point you were making was that mm-hmm. objectification on its own. It's, and I don't want to say wrong. That's so moralistic and so oversimplified but I could see it hurting people. I could see it making people uncomfortable. It's unavoidable is what it is. It's yeah. not like it's wrong. It's not really necessarily even a choice. Like somebody attractive, however you find, whatever you find people attractive for comes in onto your radar, comes into your view, crosses through your sight line and you're going to clock them as an object. And so I, I don't think it's something that people do intentionally necessarily, but it is something that you should be conscious of needing to do more than. And you shouldn't feel guilty right. about that objectifying impulse unless that's where your interactions with the people you're attracted to stop. You have to care about right. them and also as human beings. 
and I would argue that people that dehumanize the people they're sexually attracted to are in, kind of in the minority. I don't think that's a very, I don't think there's a dehumanizing element to it. I think there's a not knowing somebody and liking what you see. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I jerk off to porn all the time and I'm not looking up the backstory of the porn performer. And I would argue that I'm not, that it's not objectification. I would argue that I, I'm not being objectified regularly. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. If you check out a butt at the grocery store, what are you going to do? I just but, but <laughs> walk up and there, introduce there yourself to that person and say, "I just checked out your butt, and I don't want to feel bad about objectifying you. I just want to make sure you're. Uh, are you okay? Can you tell me something else about right. you as a person?" So that'll that, that, that'll really certainly put that really person at ease one. in the grocery store if you do that. Please they don't really, do that. They would just be stressed out. Yeah, they'd be like, <laughs> "Can you just keep this to yourself?" I so yeah, it, but you're right though that it is it, it is a slippery slope because there there's so much I don't want to whitewash. There's so much about like people's comfort and like maybe, you know, having preferences for their comfort. But at the same time, uh, one, one of my friends who's a male por- uh, gay porn star, he uh, often says, like, you don't have the right to, con- to not be sexualized. You don't have the right to not ha- to control people's thoughts. But you and also, I thought that was, like, very interesting. And another element of it, and we could talk about this all day, another element of it is you need to be conscious of when you're objectifying someone, maybe making that person feel unsafe or uncomfortable. That's huge. In a way that's, that's unfair huge. to that person. You know, objectifying See, someone I've had that in the supermarket the on the bus. Store. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there are times you need to mask it, pull it back, disguise it, because you don't want to make somebody feel unsafe moving through the world, particularly someone who's a woman feel unsafe moving through the world. Totally, the world totally. And, and that's just people who aren't self aware. Right. Yeah. And that's that's just people who aren't self aware. I've had at the grocery store a guy comes up and he's like, I know who you are. I'm taking a picture with you and his hands around my waist or his hands on my stomach. And I'm just immediately like, Yoda, I'm grocery shopping. Like, what the fuck do you think this is? Like, we're not, not at the AVNs. And even if we were, I'm not that nice porn star. Like, I'm, I'm like, no. And so that feels like objectification, arguably. So, and that would be one where I'm very uncomfortable. And that can only be chalked up to the fact that this dude is not self-aware at all. Bailey J, transsexual porn star and occultist. Follow her on Twitter at Bailey J Tweets. She's hilarious and smart and not an object or not just an object. Thank you, Bailey <laughs> J, for jumping on the phone. It's always great talking to you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old man. and I'm calling because I am having the best sex of my life, but I'm unsure if I should cut it off. So I've been seeing this girl for the last couple of months, and you know we've been sleeping together having a really good time. And a couple of weeks ago, she suggested kind of offhand that we should maybe sleep with other people possibly. And then stepped away from it saying, you know, she might be a little too jealous to deal with that. So then, you know, I kind of shrugged it off until about yesterday. She started to talk about how I could not lock her down. Um, However, I'm on a short leash So a little bit later, we're doing dinner, and I kind of said, hey, what's up with this poly thing? You know, I'm on a short leash, supposedly. And she said, oh, no, it's just a front. Um, She's not looking for anybody else to sleep with. So I was pretty comfortable with that, at least until she kind of kept wheedling that subject, saying it wasn't settled. And so I pushed her a little bit on that. She said that Burning Man is where she she was going to kind of stray from that whole not looking for other people thing. So she's going to Burning Man. She's like way down with the possibility of sleeping with other people. Um, I'm not going to be able to go. So, you know, 
it's kind of uncomfortable for me. She's kind of said, you know, it's the playa. Burning Man is is a different subject. And I I told her, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily extremely comfortable with that, especially after she had mentioned that I'm not really given any carte blanche to go sleep with other people myself at any time. So we we talked a bit more about it, and I said, hey, you know, if you want to have sex on the playa, we can drive an hour north, and I can fuck you on that playa. That's when she started to switch gears a little bit again. She started tearing up and explained that, you know, sex with a stranger at Burning Man is kind of a referendum on her being single and being independent. Um, you know, I said, I respect that, but I'm going to have to process it just because, you know, I just don't feel extremely comfortable with it. But I also told her, I don't necessarily want to make a brash decision when I don't really know how I'm going to feel about it in a couple of weeks when she gets back from Burning Man. So my question to you is, you know, I'm having the best sex of my life, but I also have an interest in protecting myself. Am I being manipulated? Should I end it regardless of the fact that we're having such good sex? Or maybe should I just set boundaries and wait it out? So your question came while I was away on vacation, and I didn't get it until after Burning Man had already come and gone. So give us the update and then let's talk about your question. Because I, th- I thought it was really interesting, which is why I wanted to use it, even though Burning Man is over. Yeah, that's... Um, so... What happened was we we kind of talked about it and then left it where it was. And about a week or so later, she came to me and she said, hey, I, um, I have an extra ticket for Burning Man. And I said, oh, you know, okay, I might be interested in that. And she says, okay, well, let me know by Saturday. And this was on like a Thursday or something. Mm-hmm. And I basically said, you know, I'm down to do it. Um, What are the details? So she told me the details and it turns out that she says, you know, I'm going with a certain camp and you can't camp with us. Oh my gosh. Um, And, and so, yeah. And so I don't really, you know, you can't camp with us, but you can kind of hang out with me some. So cut to the chase. Wait, wait, cut to the chase. Did you go to Burning Man? Did she fuck other people while she was there? Um, yeah, so I didn't go to Burning Man and um, because of those conditions, and she did fuck somebody else. Are you guys still together? Well, yeah, so I fucked my ex-girlfriend who came to visit from L.A. Okay. While she was at Burning Man. This all sounds so, so mature and healthy. I don't know what you need me I for. know, I'm such an adult. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then she came back and she disclosed what happened, and she said, I want to be boyfriend-girlfriend. And I said, I fucked my ex-girlfriend. And she said, well give me a couple of days and we can talk about it. Uh So she came over to my apartment last night and she said, um, you know, I'm kind of hurt by what you did. And I said, that's completely reasonable. And we kind of talked it out and got over it. You know, essentially it was kind of like, well, everything works out. I said, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done what I did. She said her sleeping with that other person kind of made her wish she could be with me. Um, but the one thing about it is she basically orchestrated this whole trip to Burning Man to go and sleep with one specific person who lives only a few hours away from us. And uh, that's kind of the closest big, like really kind of hip city. Again, that, so that, 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 answers, that answers my next follow-up question, which is she went to Burning Man and only fucked one other person? 
nobody I know to, who goes to Burning Man only fucks one person at Burning Man. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. That's what she said, and I, I think I believe her. I do actually. I don't think I do. She had her thighs set on someone, and that's the only person she went there and fucked. Okay, so let's back way the fuck up. When she was saying she wanted kind of complete freedom, but she wanted you on a leash, it sounds like she would might be happier with a guy who wants to be on an actual leash. Like, there are guys out there who are only too happy to be in a kind of quasi-DS circumstance around this, around she can fuck other people. I can't. We talk about them all the time. Sometimes they're called cuckolds. Sometimes they're called hot wife fetishists. But there are people out there who are men out there who want what it seems like she would be more comfortable having which is her freedom and he you don't want to say he isn't as free because he's free to do what he wants in that circumstance a guy who's a cuckold fetishist which is be with somebody who fucks other people and he doesn't they're both getting what they want out of that relationship so one isn't being deprived which brought me my question for you and now my question for you about fucking your ex-girlfriend did you want to fuck your ex-girlfriend did you just feel like you had to fuck your ex-girlfriend so things would be even steven was it for your own sense of pride? Like, well, why did you feel compelled to fuck your your, your ex girlfriend in that circumstance? Was it because you wanted to? Because you wanted things to be fair, or because you felt like you had to to save face? Um, it was to be honest. I don't think I really particularly wanted to because when she was coming, we've kind of established this close friendship between the two two of us, and so when she came up, I thought we're just friends, you know, there's nothing that's going to happen between us. And then, you know, one night it just happens. And part of me did feel a little bit like there was a sense of equity. I have to interrupt. It didn't just happen. You did it. I hate it when people say that we were standing there and the sex meteorite hit us. Sex just happened. And we were standing (laughs) there in this massive sex crater while the dinosaurs died around us. No, you did it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll totally cop to that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely did it. And there was, and I will be honest, somewhere in, my, in the back of my mind, there was a little bit of that, you know, there's some equity here. At least I thought so. And then I thought about it over a couple of days and I realized like, you know what? I basically just railroaded this person and was a complete and total hypocrite because I went and slept with someone after I had told her that I'm not okay with her doing the same thing. Okay, you didn't. Uh, okay, I thought maybe you meant you railroaded your ex girlfriend. I hope your ex girlfriend didn't feel pressured and didn't feel used in this. No, no, absolutely not. It was definitely. But you didn't. Yeah, you it, didn't. It, you know, in a way, you didn't railroad your ex girlfriend, or you didn't railroad this person who's now your girlfriend, because it turns out you weren't even boyfriend girlfriend official, Facebook official, right. before she went. Yeah. Now you guys have upgraded to BFGF. Congratulations. Let me know where to send, let me know where you're registered. I'll send a gift. But this is something that you guys are going to have to think about a little bit more and process a little bit more. I'm not saying you would be happy in a DSE kind of cuckoldy relationship where she has more latitude than you do. But if the only reason you went out and fucked somebody else in this circumstance is because you felt that equity demanded it, that fairness demanded it, not because you particularly wanted to. If I had been there in that room where the sex meteorite hit and killed the sex dinosaurs and you two fucked and that thing just happened – I would have advised you to maybe not do it if that was the only reason you were doing it. Not to give your girlfriend, Mm -hmm. now girlfriend, what she wanted because what she was asking was a little unfair. But then you need to step back when someone asks you for something that seems unfair on its face. I get to have ice cream. You don't, okay? You have to ask yourself then, well, do I want ice cream? And that's a whole other conversation. Then you say to this person, it's not that I don't deserve as much ice cream as you, but I don't really want ice cream, so I'm not going to eat ice cream. So you're not really denying it to me. And that's not what this is about, because I don't want to get in a DS ice cream situation, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to eat the ice cream because I don't want it, not because you're not allowing me to have it, which is a different dynamic. Right. 
And then you need to have a further conversation with her about what this means going forward for both of you. Is she one of those people who has a bit of a hang up about wanting to fuck other people, but not wanting the person that she's emotionally involved with and romantically involved with to be doing the same. And those people are Mm -hmm. out there and there is a relationship model and structure that allows them to live that without depriving somebody else of their fair share of the fucking sex ice cream. But she has to then know herself well enough to know that that's the kind of guy she wants and go get that kind of guy, not try to mold you or manipulate you into becoming that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah, that totally makes sense. But you don't need me, obviously. You guys both did what you were going to do that week, and it didn't prevent you from becoming boyfriend girlfriend. So it wasn't you know a relationship extinction level event that went down. It wasn't the meteorite slamming into the dinosaurs, right? But right. I think there's unresolved issues here that you guys are going to have to unpack in the future. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you kind of after hearing your insight, too. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, that's I definitely appreciate that that um, that advice, too. And I think I think I'm going to have to go back and sit down and, and we can have a conversation maybe maybe a, a, at this moment. And knowing now, <laughs> knowing now what we both know about who she wanted to fuck at Burning Man and it wasn't just some stinky rando grit covered hippie but it was a specific person that she arranged to meet there it sounds Mm -hmm. like that could become a recurring thing that every once in a while there might be somebody who pops up in her life or on her radar that she wants to get with and Mm -hmm. is that okay with you and what do you want in return what's in that for you and do you want the same kind of permission every once in a while and if she's so insecure that she couldn't sign off on that or wouldn't want to know about that is that she can tell you about it because that doesn't bother you but for you it's a DADT thing where if it happens it happens but she doesn't want to know so you both have the same Mm -hmm. kind of degree of freedom but you have a different agreement about honesty and disclosure Mm -hmm. that's workable and and mutually agreed to and consensual Mm -hmm. or again does she need to be with all the guys who are out there beating off to cuckold porn right now and they are legion, but you are not one of them. Uh, it sounds like, right? Absolutely not. All right, go have those conversations and give us a call back and let us know how it turned out. Great, thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan Nancy, and the Tech Study at Risk Youth. I'm calling about a question, not so much about romantic relationships, but about family relationships. So I've had a really horrible relationship with my sister my entire life, um, almost thirty years. She was really emotionally abusive to me that entire time. Um, She constantly berated me and emphasized how much she hated me. And I feel like a lot of that hatred stems from the fact that I'm bisexual. And I think she picked up on that. She's become extremely conservative. um, And although I've never come out to her, I definitely feel like it played a role in the way that she felt about me. Nowadays, obviously, I don't live with her and I don't have to spend much time around her. But Family gatherings are always really stressful and anxiety-producing for me, and I don't think I'm ever going to have a good relationship with her. My parents knew that things were really bad between us, and they sent her to counseling, but she refused to talk to anybody, and she's never really demonstrated any sincere remorse for how she's treated me. She still makes really hateful comments to me anytime I have to see her at family gatherings, and I'm, I'm pretty well-adjusted. But I still have a lot of anxiety, particularly as it relates to her. And every family visit just gets harder and harder because I spend the whole time trying to avoid speaking with her. All my kids, or all my siblings have children of their own now and want to play more and more events with the entire family. 
And I don't want to make them choose between her and me, but I also kind of wonder if I should take a stand with the rest of my family and end all future contact between me and her because I consider her my abuser. And I can't help thinking if this was a parent or a boyfriend, they would be more supportive, even though everyone knows that it wasn't okay and that will never be okay and that I don't, I don't want to spend any more time with her. So I really appreciate your advice, Dan. Thanks. You make a terrific point. If you were talking about a boyfriend who had abused you or even a parent who abused you, the rest of your family would have an easier side taking sides and seeing the abuse for what it was. There is something about sibling to sibling abuse that kind of gets a pass or exists in a sort of emotional blind spot for a lot of people because sibling rivalry, because so many uh, sibling relationships are fraught and kids can be awful to each other growing up and then somehow salvage adult relationships out of the agitas and the mess. So uh, I hear you. I worry for you, however, because one of the dynamics in a family is to turn a blind eye to keep the peace. And in those circumstances, and it sounds like that may be what's going on here. Your parents sent your sister to counseling. They clearly recognize your sister had some sort of problem that she refused to address. They sent her to counseling. Everybody knows, hopefully, that she's the one with the issue. But often in a case like this, the family will turn on not the person who was the problem, but the person who forces them to choose. That's the person who sometimes then loses in that circumstance where people witnessed this abuse. They tried to minimize it or address it and kick the can down the road. And now everyone's an adult. Nobody lives in the same house. And they just want to keep the peace and pretend what happened didn't happen and hope everybody can just get along. And then you come in and say, you know what? She's still shitty to me. It rips open scabs. It makes me anxious and miserable and unhappy. So if she's here, I'm not coming to this family gathering. If you invite her, I'm not coming. And then people will get mad at you for making everybody choose, for taking that stand. And then the abuser or the shitty person in the family still gets to come to the family gatherings and the person who was abused and shat upon doesn't. That's the risk you're running here. But is it a risk? What are you risking? You're risking not going to those family gatherings that make you miserable. Either way, you kind of win, right? If, if you make this demand, if she's there, I'm not coming, and she doesn't get invited, you win. If you make this demand, if she's there, I'm not coming, and she's there, and you don't get to come, in a way, you still win because you don't have to go. And you can do your own workarounds with your relationships with your other siblings by seeing them one-on-one, -on -one, by seeing them privately, by establishing your own traditions around Christmas or whatever holidays are, the big family gathering holidays where you gather friends around you and family that you choose to include who can make it. And you become less dependent on your family for these playdates with cousins. That you create your own playdates with other adult siblings that you enjoy spending time with and their children and get them together. There is a point between it's her or me. If she's coming, I'm not coming, which is, hey, you guys run interference for me. Not necessarily engineer conflicts or confront her. Just I can't be alone with her. I need intercepts. If you want me there and her there together, that creates a little bit of emotional labor for you guys to make sure I feel safe, which is don't leave me alone with her. Intervene if she starts coming after me. Give me an excuse always to get the fuck out of the room and don't make an issue out of it if I have to go, if I have to leave early or I get up and walk out of the dining room from the table because something shitty was just said to me. Don't make it an issue. Don't make it my issue. It's her issue. Confront her about it. 
but run interference. Maybe then I can be there. If people can't do that, then yeah, don't go. I don't think you should not take this stand. I don't think you should refrain from making this demand. You just have to, before you make it, steal yourself for either outcome. And I would put 60% chance on you being treated like the one who's the problem now and your family siding at least initially with your awful sister who they've been turning a blind eye to all these years. They're going to want to continue in that pattern. So you need to reconcile yourself to and accept that either outcome is a good outcome for you emotionally. You may have other emotions to process if your family chooses the shitty sister over you, at least at family gatherings, and that may cause you some pain. But throw that on the scales with the pain you'll avoid by not having to be around your shitty sister at a family gathering versus not being able to go to that family gathering. Hopefully the avoided pain is greater than the new pain, than to continue to put up with that shitty old pain that is being in your shitty sister's presence. But before you make your ultimatum, reconcile yourself to either outcome being Good for you in the final accounting. Hey, Dan, calling about episode 515 and the woman who got off on secretly stalking men. I was really disappointed by your answer. I was, you know, you were dismissive of the guys who maybe have been stalked by ex-girlfriends or jilted lovers or people who've uh, done property damage or made their lives difficult in some emotional way, maybe not in the physical way that women are afraid of, but still... Stalking's uncool, and I don't think you should have encouraged her. Hi, Dan. Calling in response to episode 515, uh, your response to the woman who likes to follow men. I think that is really messed up that it's okay for a woman to do it, not a man to do it. I think if we want to proclaim the equality of the sexes, which, you know, I think that's kind of the idea behind feminism, is that anyone can do anything regardless of their sex then it's not okay for a woman to follow a man, just as it's not okay for a man to follow a woman. The fact that a woman following a man doesn't have the same context, I think really is not super relevant to the fact that she still could be freaking out a dude. She's doing the same thing that she dislikes when men do to her. So how is that okay? Hey, Dan, this is a response to episode 515's rant. Quick reminder, many black people are not the descendants of immigrants because slaves did not immigrate. They were kidnapped. Hi, this is a comment for the guy in episode 515 who wants to know how to meet um, good quality, authentic men. Dude, go online and Google gay charities in your area and sign up to volunteer. It doesn't have to be a huge time commitment. There are a lot of opportunities for one-time events. You're going to meet a ton of people who are excited about helping the gay community and want to meet other people like them. And you also feel really good about yourself in the process. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Subscribe if you are listening to the 45-minute micro edition of the Savage Lovecast with ads. Know that there is a subscription-only magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. It's twice as long, more guests, more calls, and no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com for information about subscribing or gifting a subscription to someone else if you're already a subscriber and we love our subscribers follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow my big brother billy on twitter at rogers park man and follow bailey j on twitter at 
Bailey J tweets. Speaking of Twitter, at Master Juratak tweets a lot of acronyms on your show at Fake Dan Savage. New listeners are people too. Fill us in. GGG, give me a game. DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. Actually, if you ever hear an acronym on this program that you don't understand, you can Google it with my name and it'll take you to a wiki page or urban dictionary page where you will find that thing unpacked at great length. So you don't have to be confused, the Google. It's your friend and mine too. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for doing